One FM. Right now, I am joined by Professor uh, Nicola Piet from uh, the Faculty of Law, teaches property law, wills and trusts, advanced family property law and medical law, and is an affiliate of the Bioethics Centre. Today, we're talking about consent to posthumous reproduction. Morena, good morning to you. Good morning. How are we today? Very, very, very well. Another beautiful Otipoti Monday morning. <laughs> say so it's a bit damp <laughs> just a little bit just a little bit but to be honest it's you know i take this for a winter's day yes yeah i'd, I'd like to see the grayness lift a little yeah it's been a yeah. last week was wonderful yes, which was good yeah. for, for my children in school holidays yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was fabulous yeah. all right um speaking of children yes um yes um consent to uh, posthumous reproduction uh, i guess it's something that the average person doesn't think about uh, but what are we talking about here we're really talking about the situation, uh, the most common scenario is where a, a man, normally a husband or male partner, dies suddenly, unexpectedly, and his surviving spouse uh, or partner would like to have his child mm -hmm. um, and then asks to have the sperm removed from him. Uh, to be stored and then to be used by her at some later point if she chooses to do so so that she can in years to come still have his child yep. that's in a nutshell the kind of scenario that arises most commonly so the partner um, has the right to consent at this point no. over that no. no see that's the difficulty the normal rule particularly with all forms of reproduction and assisted reproduction is that the person whose sperm or gametes are taken uh, is the person who needs to consent to mm -hmm. this so uh, at the moment the problem usually is where the death is sudden and unexpected that the man has not even considered the possibility of having a child after he's dead mm -hmm. um, and therefore hasn't normally consented either expressly or even discussed the possibility yeah. so the question then is can you then take it um, what we've had now in New Zealand is two cases in which the court has granted permission to take the, uh, the sperm. Uh, normally in the circumstances they look for evidence that the man was considering having children. Yeah. Um, but having a child during your lifetime is quite different to saying to your spouse or partner, yes, feel free to have a child after I'm dead. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, not quite the same. Um, and uh, But in both cases, the court granted the approval. So though in both cases that sperm has been taken and has been stored, what has not yet happened is that in neither case has the woman yet um, sought or applied for permission to use it to have the child. Okay, so you can take it but you don't necessarily can use it. That's right, they're two separate steps. So the collection is the first step and then the use is the second step. Okay, that's so, interesting. Um, it is kind of odd really because the whole point of collecting it yeah, is so to be able to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the, the, I think what the, the courts are thinking is, well, if we don't grant permission to collect it, then she can't use it. Yeah. I mean, it's futile. Yeah. So there is a sense that perhaps they're allowing the collection as an almost an interim step uh, so that at a later stage, the, the woman can still apply for approval to use mm -hmm. it, at which stage, of course, it, that may not be granted. Yeah. 
and she may well then uh, have to uh, just accept that she's not going to have his child. One would assume, though, you'd use the same argument in both cases. Yes, I think the difference is that when you're applying for collection, it almost almost always happens under urgency. It has to be done within 36 hours. Yeah. Pretty much. So um, can you imagine, you know, your husband has just died. Mm-hmm. Within 36 hours, you've got to have a court order. Yeah. Uh, that is a big, uh, a big ask. So you know, in most cases, um, it, there'll be a few hours while the woman processes the death and then starts to think about the possibility of having a child, finding a lawyer to then bring the application. If it's happened at night or in the weekend, you've got to find a judge who is going to, there is always a duty judge um, who's going to hear and decide the case and they will of course do so very promptly Uh but it gives them no time to really mount proper arguments and consider those proper arguments yeah yeah so i mean the the judge might not have any background or anything like this at all if it's just a duty judge very little i mean there's just not enough time to do that so the last case um the judge made the order but he made it as an interim order and then said right uh, you can take it, but what I want to do now is in a few months' time I'd like to hear full argument mm-hmm. and I then want to consider all of the possibilities, etc. And um, and I will then make a decision as to whether what I ordered tonight yeah, yeah, was yeah. actually lawful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what about in terms of, like, we live in uh, a beautiful country, Aotearoa, and we have same-sex marriages legal. Yeah. What, I mean, do the same guidelines apply, um, so say it's a female partner to a male partner when it comes to sperm? Would it, would it be the same? It's in, in theory, the same issue might arise, except that technically uh, the retrieving of eggs is rather more difficult. Yeah. Um, and so... It'll, it'll probably be a matter of time in some respects that they can uh, they can start to do this uh, posthumously but uh, normally with with women you have to wait for ovulation etc yeah. and of course if she's died uh, presumably and I'd, I'm no medic yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to try and keep the bodily functions mm. going until such time as ovulation occurs but maybe they can bring in ovulation Quickly, uh, I don't know that yeah. technical stuff, but it is more difficult. And of course, th- don't forget you'll always need a surrogate then. Yes, that's right. That's so right. then you're in a you're in a, to a third party. Mm. Whereas where you when you're taking the husband's sperm, you, the normal idea is that the <coughs> the wife will use it. So yeah. it's the same two people. Okay. So where would it stand for what, what I mean? Sorry. Um, where would it stand for same-sex couples? So say it's a, a gay couple, two men. Yeah. And they were planning on having a child, and they yes. were going to use a surrogate uh, yep. eventually. Yep. Uh, and they could prove that. Um, will that stand in court? Could a could a gay man ask for permission to, to it could, take the surrogate? Could certainly. It doesn't, you know. I mean, it won't discriminate between homosexual relationships and straight relationships. Well, it's not the supposed to. Guidelines, yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. supposed to. Um, it hasn't as yet uh, happened, and not in New Zealand that yeah. I know of. At least, certainly, it hasn't gone to court. It certainly, would have hit the headlines if it had. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that what uh, the Advisory Committee on Assisted Reproductive Technology, which is the, gov- the body that has been charged with adopting guidelines, um, they are developing guidelines at the moment and they've got a consultation document out. What they uh, would next need to consider is the possibility that it could be somebody other than uh, a natural spouse or you know where you could have natural conception ha- taking place easily yeah. you'd have to have a third party in there um, 
at the moment that's not yet part of what they're considering but that's a logical next step yeah yeah that's right um all right uh, so say say it does go ahead and someone has a child yeah, yeah we were saying a little you were just mentioning off here before that the child wouldn't for would be fatherless essentially yes uh, that's because under we have statute called the status of children act which determines who the parents are of children and uh, when we started permitting all forms of assisted reproduction they uh-huh. passed a new statute um, to ensure that for example gay couples would be seen as the parents of the child born as a result of assisted reproduction uh-huh. so two males who are in a relationship and have a child are the parents of that child uh, in accordance with uh, or or can be in accordance with the law Um, similarly with two um, uh, lesbian women so um, similarly if the couple are not who have the child uh, the the husband and the wife if they've used donor eggs or donor sperm and they have an, an implanted embryo they will be deemed to be the parents of the child even if the embryo is genetically not linked to them yeah what that act did not do is to consider the possibility of posthumous reproduction mm. where a woman has a child after her husband has or conceives the child yes, after cons- her husband yeah. has mm. died uh, then uh, <clears throat> normally she would, if she's alone uh, and she hasn't got a partner, she would be deemed to be acting alone and having no, the child would have no second parent. Um, <clears throat> that's been the case in all the other jurisdictions as well. There was a well-known case in England in the 80s called Diana Blood. She applied to take the sperm of her deceased husband to Belgium to have children which she did Mm -hmm. she had two sons and then her next battle was when she got back to have her late husband registered as their father and they had to pass special legislation to permit that um, which they've done and they've done it in most of the Australian states as well but we haven't yet done that we would have to do something similar okay and and hopefully that's something that will be considered soon or well I mean the first step is to see whether or not we're going to permit posthumous reproduction and under what circumstances and then the next step will be uh, to consider the consequences of it but in my view if we permit uh, posthumous reproduction we have got to go down the track of changing the legislation at the very least to permit the father to be registered as the father of the child yes because that can throw up a lot of legal issues later on down the track uh, (laughs) and it's just going to tie up the courts more and uh, um, i assume that they don't really want to do that no no no. very expensive Uh, it is why um back in 2000 when they set out some guidelines for this why was it only around sperm and i can understand that we can't harvest eggs at this point in time with technology we've got uh, after a, a woman has died but there is frozen eggs yeah um so why wasn't the, this written in the guideline that frozen eggs may be used, perhaps? I think it's a, it's a product of its time. Um, it doesn't it, seem that long ago. It doesn't <laughs> seem that long ago. It doesn't seem that long ago. And it, it is perhaps a bit surprising that in England they had adopted the, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the statute now, the Human Embryology and something or other Act, uh, in 1990 so there was legislation out there already where they had addressed some of these issues but we were very very slow to move in that direction and have done so in a very cautionary manner so that those guidelines are really only concerned with um, 
sperm that was taken from a person while he was alive yeah. stored and then in what circumstances that sperm might be used uh, after his death and in terms of actually collecting it after death uh, there was just one line you can't do that without prior written consent end of story mm -hmm. um, so the guidelines was were really targeting uh, stored sperm taken with consent from a living donor at a time when uh, the various uh, artificial reproductive technology centers were not we're not as, as, as properly regulated and had the kind of standards that they do now whereby they would collect that information at the time when they collect the sperm. Mm -hmm. So anybody who now donates sperm or eggs will be asked, what would you like to have done with them in the event that you die? Yeah. What happens if you've donated sperm um, to a sperm donation centre yeah. and you die? What happens to that? Well, then they would normally now have, you would, would, would do so normally with a, a form that you complete in the form asks, you've get, you've given what would you like to have done after you died? Oh, okay. So you can say, I'd like it then disposed of, or it can be used in accordance with the, the, yeah. the Fertility Centre's uh, guidelines. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. Um, what constitutes a partner in this regard? Like a civil union partnership? Yep. Yeah. And a de facto partner yeah, as well. Yeah, so three, yes. three, was it two or three years? I can't remember. Well, it's, it's an interesting one. It doesn't actually necessarily establish three years as a limit for these kinds of purposes. Three years is the, is the requirement under the Property Relationships Act if you want to acquire property, but that's for a different purpose. Yes. So it could be shorter. Um, but I would imagine that in most cases you have, if you're looking for artificial insemination or any kind of artificial reproductive um, procedure and you're going through these fertility providers, um, there are quite rigorous processes in place to determine whether or not um, you're ready for this, how, what the relationship is like, yeah. interest of the child. They have to consider all of those factors quite carefully. So you wouldn't have a relationship that's only been on foot for a month. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and, and one would assume that in some cases, um, fa other family members like parents mm -hmm. or um, you know brothers and sisters um, could challenge these cases. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Whether they could challenge. Um, I was in preparation for this talk uh, later. I was looking at the Australian um, material as well, and they have declared, at least in their national guidelines, that uh, only the only person who can request to use sperm after the death of their deceased partner is the surviving partner, mm -hmm. not any other relative. Um, so they've narrowed it quite carefully, whereas... Yeah here there could be other situations it's it, it is a you know that's a big issue should mm -hmm. others have some kind of influence uh, or role in the decision as to whether that um, sperm is used yeah. even by the surviving partner should a parent be allowed to stop a surviving partner mm. from using the sperm it is interesting because um, i mean this lineage i mean there's a whole yes. you know uh, it's uh, f things in family law later on yep. saying if the parents of the deceased are still alive and then they pass on yeah you know do does the child have access to their you know, assets their assets exactly <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. it always comes down to money in the end well, <laughs> and it's sad it's sad I but had. i mean it is true um and, and and there could well be a situation where they where the parents really would not want to see that happen maybe there are already a lot of children and maybe the family is struggling financially and they really don't think it's sensible that there's another child brought into the world. I mean, there may be all sorts of reasons mm -hmm. why they would prefer that it didn't happen. 
but it's a big big call for parents to say to a surviving partner you can't use your you know my deceased part my deceased child's sperm even though he was your husband or partner mm. um i think that that probably would be quite difficult but if you think about other kinds of tissue that can be collected after death say for organ donation then the family has quite a big say yes uh, yes, and that right. e extends beyond the spouse or partner. Yes. So is this so special because of the nature of the tissue and its purpose that we actually carve out special rules? Mm. Yes, it's uh, interesting. But it's all life in the end, though, isn't yes, it? it is. Yes, it yeah. is. Um, yeah. Okay, so the Advisory Committee on Assisted Reproductive Technology, yeah. um, which has just released its Stage 1 consultation on policy options. Yeah. Um, what are they looking at? What, what is this Stage 1 and, and what's coming yeah. in Stage 2? So Stage 1 is uh, basically uh, a fact-finding mission, one might ask. It asks a number of questions and it asks the public to consider what their views would be, uh, for example, about consent. Mm -hmm. Do they believe that uh, the deceased must give express written consent or could the consent be given verbally or are you prepared to accept that consent might be inferred from circumstances or even are you going to so far as to say there was no objection yeah so what role are you going to give to the to the deceased in all of this um, who should be allowed to use it should it only be allowed to be used by the surviving partner or mm -hmm. should other members of the family perhaps be able to use it Who's going to authorise this? You know, given the urgency with collection, yeah. you can't really um, have uh, the, you know, get a committee together necessarily very easily mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the night on Sunday night uh, to make decisions like this. So you may have to look to some other kind of procedure if that's what you if you're going to require some form of authorisation. Yeah. So it's those sort of they're they're. Um, questions with a number of options for people to consider but they could also come up with alternative ideas if they have them so this is really trying to gauge public opinion about posthumous uh, collection and use of uh, of uh, of tissue yeah yeah and I mean there's a whole lot of future scenarios running yes. through my head at the moment <laughs> about what you know I mean in terms of um, uh, genetics, mm. DNA mm -hmm. use, uh, um, a, a lot of things um, but that I won't go into right now. I've watched too many sci-fis, to be honest. <laughs> Get back to reality. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm really interested in this process, actually, with the committee yeah. because I wonder, I mean, because it's been put out there to the public, right? I mean, and I didn't hear about it until I started looking into this. Right. Uh, and I wonder who does hear about it and is... Who is having their say? Yeah. You know, is it going to be people uh, of certain religious views, certain um, family value views, um, or you know, I worry that there could be groups that look out for these kinds of things and have certain certain agendas yeah. instead of a wide public taking. Yes, exactly, um, and I think that's um, part of the reason why I agree to do this talk uh, to the bioethics center um it is uh, I, th this is a topic that could be captured by particular interest groups there's mm. no doubt about that having said that ACART does need to reflect that's the advisory committee yes. so we're abbreviated to ACART yeah. um does have to consider uh, a range of views obviously so they will be targeting uh, particular groups as well I mean they will have a target audience that yeah. they will be sending this material to 
um, and that would then uh, allow them to hopefully get a, a balanced uh, view. Um, but it is getting that information out there, getting people to think about it. It's a it's not a short document. It's yeah. it's about the text and the questions are about thirty five pages. But I was reading it again in the weekend, and I think it's it's very carefully explained um, in I think fairly plain English, and it asks fairly straightforward questions yeah. which I think people can relate to yeah. reasonably there's been a bit in the newspaper about people having these experiences so uh, hopefully there'll be people coming forward thinking about it mm -hmm. and uh, just finally um, how fast is, is this being moved on <laughs> uh, I can imagine it's quite slow ah yes well <laughs> this is stage one uh, and the submissions are due on the 3rd of September then the next stage is to use that information to start drafting guidelines and yeah. putting them out for consultation. It's part of the Human Assisted Reproductive Technology Act is an obligation on ACART to consult. Yeah. Um, once they have finalized the draft guidelines, they then send them to the minister and it's the minister that they are advising. Um, and then, well, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> how long is the minister going to sit on this, and how uh, you know when is it going to come to him? And David. What, what, yes, David Clark. Yes, exactly. You know what stage of the election process are we into then? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the earliest it's going to come out is uh, is next year, later next year. Yeah, I'm so glad you said what stage of the process are we <laughs> in there because we all know how politics works. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Look, I mean, also you, all you need is a few key cases suddenly to happen, yeah. and yeah. then it might suddenly catapult forward, um, or it might not. Mm, mm. And, so. it's a, and, and I don't like to put this out there on poor David, mm -hmm. but I mean, he is a former pastor, yes. a former minister, yes. uh, and yeah. one would hope that um, the committee's advice would override perhaps his own personal views. Well, I think he's there to represent the country, isn't yes. he? Um, and it's a view that undoubtedly is important. Yes. Um, equally, it's not necessarily against uh, some of the Christian beliefs that this kind of conception can take place. So some people, the, the, some of the cases are extremely strong, yeah. um, whereby you can really sense that this would make sense for this family to have this opportunity. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about people who haven't actually got that kind of strong evidence behind them. All right, all right, um, all right, uh, Professor Peart. Thank you so much for coming in this morning. Thank you. Um, so your talk today uh, is over at the Bioethics Bi Centre, which is the old bowler. Yes, yes, upstairs. Yeah, yeah, so across <laughs> the road from the hospital. In, yes, entrance on Frederick Street across yeah. the road from the hospital. Very yes. good. And uh, it's from 12 till 1. No, it's from 1 till 2. As of 1 to 2. Well, I hope you know, so, because we'll I'm lecturing from <laughs> between 12 and 1 to Wills and Trust students. <laughs> well, um, the events page says 12 to 1. Oh, well, then so, they're wrong. They're, well, they're wrong about a lot. <laughs> well, not necessarily wrong, they just yeah. don't have anything in there. Okay, so it's from 1 to uh, 1, one till two. 2, please. Yeah, 1 till 2. Uh, and uh, this is some of the things you'll be talking about, and I'm, I'm guessing yeah. you'll be expanding on a lot of things yes. talking about, um, yeah. and talking about things uh, that I didn't put in any of you. So, uh, but thank you so much for coming it's in. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Uh, and uh, have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope a lot of people get along to that talk.